This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. This season's podcast is sponsored by a great new startup called Twink Life. They have built a well-being hub full of useful information of tweaks that you can make, including mindfulness, nutrition, exercise, managing addictions, improving your finances and even the menopause. The last few years have been really tough for us all and with this in mind, Louise created this hub hoping to help individuals and businesses offer this to their employees and apply some of these tweaks to make a difference to people's lives. This is free to use, so for more information, please go to tweaklife.co.uk. My guest today on One for the Road is a volunteer speaker from the COA and recently appeared on the documentary Alcohol Dad and Me with Vicky Patterson. Sadly, Amy lost her dad to alcoholism two years ago. And in this episode, she talks candidly about what it was like growing up as a child of an alcoholic and what life looks like now her dad is sadly no longer with us. So please give a very special welcome to Amy Dixon. So hello, Amy. Welcome to episode one of season seven of One for the Road. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, actually. It's boiling hot today, isn't it? And you're in your office, um, actually looking quite cool. I've got um, a load of pillows up against my window because it's like green now. So I'm just pleased to be in a room without a child asking me for snacks, to be honest, for an hour. So I I'm bet. excited. <laughs> I bet. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, and you recently appeared on the documentary with Vicky Patterson, and we discussed your part in there. And I know, working in TV myself, that you can record for three hours and be shown for 90 seconds. So 
we can talk about that a little bit later on. But as a child of an alcoholic, I thought it'd be really interesting to uh, talk about what it was like for you growing up with your dad, Steve, how his drinking impacted your childhood. And we can go from there. Is that okay? Absolutely fine. So how was it? Well, I guess just to give a background, my dad, Steve, died in September 2020. He was 68 when he died due to his alcohol addiction. Um, It's really hard to sort of say how was it because like anybody, there were some really brilliant parts and some not so brilliant parts. And really just I've spent the last two years trying to really unpick which bits were good because they were good and which bits were due to his addiction and which bits were just kind of fairly just normal childhood growing up stuff, right? I don't think when I was very young, I didn't know my dad was an alcoholic. I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the understanding. I didn't really have any comparison. I actually stopped living with my dad when I was about 14. Um, But by then his drinking was problematic. And I think after that, then things really sort of went downhill for him over a period of time. So I would say as a young child, it really didn't have a huge impact on me. Looking back, I can see that there were things that weren't normal, in inverted commas. Um, My parents were very sociable, but he'd always be the one passed out at the end of the night. You know, we were kind of taken to barbecues in the summer. He'd always be the one passed out in a deck chair. And it was what he was known for. And it was funny. And he he really bigged up that part of him. And he was he was a funny drunk at that point. He was absolutely the life and soul of the party. He had just this booming laugh and these hilarious stories. And really, that was okay. I remember waking up quite young, being really scared in the night because I used to think there was a bear prowling the house. And I used to um, literally freeze in my bed. And I had this whole plan of what would I do when this bear came into the room. And actually, I realised now that it was my dad really drunk and snoring. So... Whilst I say it didn't have an impact, of course, there are things it did, but it wasn't a cause of stress for me at that point. And I think then as a teenager, his behaviour did start to deteriorate. And I was very, very, very protective over my dad. Um, I still am. Things worried me then. I still never took it personally. I wasn't really angry because I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. You know, I'd kind of see him on the weekends. Um... We spoke every day, but I things he was sort of telling these stories about things that had happened. You know, he'd fallen over and had to have his head stitched back up, and things were happening that I was just really uncomfortable with. And then I guess it did start to impact on my life a little bit, but initially in quite small ways because I wasn't there every day. But for example, at 15, I had to have my tonsils taken out. So my mum took me to the hospital, I had my tonsils taken out that day, and my dad just didn't come. He just didn't come to the hospital to visit me. And he tipped up about half past 10 that night. And he was absolutely paralytic. He'd driven. He had driven. He'd been out all day on a work do. And he had driven to the hospital and kind of basically just came in and sat in the chair and then passed out. And then I think eventually got up and and drove home. And that's quite challenging because, again, I don't think I ever felt second best at that point because that was what I was used to. But looking back, that's really not okay. But 
I did always have my mum. I had my mum and my brother, and that was our family unit, I guess, really. They were the people I was with 24-7, and that was a very solid place to be. So it was it was okay. When you say um, you stopped living with your dad at 14, did your mum leave him? My dad left, actually. Oh. Um, with hindsight, absolutely, that marriage would have ended. My mum would say the same. Um, I think it probably would have taken her a little bit longer um, because I think she would have tried other things. And But I think eventually she would have removed us. Um, and certainly that was something that came up in the documentary last week where um, Vicky's mum had actually ended her marriage. And it did open up a conversation with my mum, which I'd never really had. And I said, but you, you would have... You would have left, wouldn't you? And you would have taken us. And yes, absolutely. I see that would have been what would have happened. So when he left, did you then start to see that his drinking was worse, do you think? Yeah, I guess just the stories around it in that I think actually being in, in a family home at that point, he was working in London and he was going out and he was getting drunk, but he sort of had that boundary of sort of having to come home. Mm. Then when he was on his own or sort of with girlfriends who he, he didn't really have so many responsibilities. And, yeah, I think he did. That really escalated. He was going out a lot. Um, and that's when he started to kind of have injuries, cracking his head open, you know, just, yeah, falling over, things like that, kind of falling out of trains. I mean, mad. And he just always dressed them up as being a funny, a funny story. Um, but I think that's probably where my anxiety around him really started. That was a classic denial, wasn't it? Because that's what I used to do is always, oh, guess what happened to me? Blah, blah, blah. But really, I was riddled with shame and disgusting myself, really. So what point, what age were you when you really started to become concerned about his drinking? I would say late I would say mid-teens onwards, really. Um, but again, I think mid-teens, I still didn't really have the words, or I didn't want to say the word. Mm. And at that point, he was still holding down a job. He had a career. It was kind of, he was absolutely functioning with it. Um, I would say my early 20s is where really he tipped over to the other side of the addiction, which is where things started to really get quite out of control. Then they'd sort of stabilise, then we'd slip, then it would plateau. But from that point, it all became very, very unstable. Um, I remember going to an Al-Anon meeting on my own in sort of my early 20s. And I just couldn't believe that I was in that place. I could not, you know, it's that thing that it's always somebody else. And I think I probably had quite a lot of judgments, judgmental thoughts about the term alcoholic. I remember speaking to Alcoholics Anonymous. I phoned their helpline. And I remember kind of justifying his drinking to the person on the helpline. And I said, well, you know, he's not, he's not really an alcoholic because he doesn't wake up in the morning and put kind of vodka on his cornflake. So we're not really, you know, he's not that bad. And the guy said, you can't say that. And he said, and that's not what being, and he sort of explained to me, that's not what being an alcoholic is. Um, so I went to this Al-Anon meeting. It wasn't the right place for me at that time. I was I was probably too young. And again, I hadn't really admitted it to myself. And I didn't feel connected to the people in that room in that the meeting I went to was a lot of sort of spouses or loved ones of an alcoholic. But there was nobody my age. There was 
there was nobody I felt a connection with. Um, and I just couldn't speak. I just sobbed through the whole thing and then I never went back. And you didn't know about Nakoa then, did you? No. 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 Um, and I guess multiple reasons. One, I think I was managing it. I didn't feel at that point that I needed help. I didn't feel that I needed it validating. I took on quite a, a sort of a caring role. So I felt I had to be quite strong. Um, I've always been really protective over my, I'm going to call him my baby brother, but he's in his 40s now. But I always wanted to be the one that my dad would phone if something went wrong. I wanted to be the one who would help. Um, and I didn't feel at that point that I needed help for myself because I was managing it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, and also I'm so old that probably my 20s was really before the internet was a thing. And, uh, <laughs> you know what? Um, on a serious note, I'm going to play slight devil's advocate here where you said it was in, in your 20s that you realised things reached uh, another level. but. For me, sitting here, it appeared they were already at that level when you were in your early teens, you know, turning up at your hospital half past 10 at night. So maybe, do you think it was you maybe getting a little bit older and looking at it differently that you started to explore uh, what his drinking meant and maybe how it affected you as well? Maybe. And I absolutely adored my dad. I just thought he was brilliant. And, you know, when I was really young and I think maybe there was that thing where I was just so grateful and so happy when he was present and was in a good place that I kind of didn't really go to the thoughts that it wasn't okay. Mm. And then, yes, absolutely, probably mid-teens when you start socialising yourself and you understand how alcohol makes you feel and what that brings, maybe that also increased that depth of understanding around it. You're absolutely right. He was in a bad place way before I realised. But nobody, we just weren't talking about it. And and where would we have got, you know, it's really hard. Where would we have gone? Because he wasn't living with us. He wasn't married to my mum. I don't know where we would have gone. And it's a difficult conversation to have when you don't completely understand it. And, you, you know, like, I know my son, George, he's never really brought it up with me. All he says to me is, Dad, I'm really proud of what you've done now. And I used to go out of him and get drunk a lot, but he was in his 20s then. But when he was growing up, he didn't live with me. And for a lot of the time, I tried not to drink when he stayed. But it was almost like the older he got, the more I kind of slipped into those bad habits. And we've never had that conversation. You know, so probably he didn't know how to approach me and I didn't know how to talk to him because I felt so ashamed of myself as well. So it's a really sensitive subject. He was always very, the the times that other people tried to raise it, his response was so negative and so angry and he would completely deny he had a problem. My mum always tells this story where she sort of researched alcohol awareness courses and said I think you need to do this and he said I'm aware of alcohol and I like it and he was very quick to shut those conversations down but my oldest friend when my dad died she said oh I remember your dad taking us out in London and we went on he he took us to um, Gordon's by the embankment and we had a great night and it was really fun and I do not remember that at all I've got absolutely zero memory of this one night I look back and I think that's just really weird. Like I'm just really uncomfortable that that happened, and that was the thing. Yeah. That is not what 
he should have been encouraging me to do at that age with my friend. How old were you? I don't know. I might, again, must have been kind of late teens, early 20s. But yeah. I just think, no, that's not okay. You should have just taken us out for dinner and yeah. then we should have said goodbye. We shouldn't have ended up. But for whatever reason, I've got absent. She remembers it so vividly. I absolutely know it happened. I just can't. Yeah. I've got no recall of it. Maybe his behaviour was really difficult that night. I just don't know. So you mentioned to me before that um, you saw your dad as two different people. Um, I know for me that for years and years and years, I was this happy-go-lucky bloke uh, that would always make everyone laugh in the pub. The the doors would open like a Western and I would walk in with my Stetson on and my cowboy boots and say, two fingers are red eye. And, and, you know, the barman would pour me a drink and everyone, all right, glugsy and whatever. But when I started to go to the off-licence over the road and get takeouts like eight cans of Diamond White and then sit at home on my own, I started to change and I started to get angry and bitter and twisted and my personality changed and actually I didn't become a very nice person towards the end, I don't think. I was angry. Is this how you saw your dad? Like, did he change towards the end? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I really do see him very much as two different people. I had my dad from 1978 to about 1996-ish. And then from then on, I just had this person who I loved, who I was absolutely related to and very protective of. But we did not have a traditional slash normal father-daughter relationship and yes he could be disinterested he could be absent he could let you down he was really angry um, and he'd say some really unkind things about other people who I care for deeply he was disinterested in me in my husband, in my children when I had them. I mean, he absolutely loved my children, but he just didn't have it in him to really have any form of relationship with them. He loved the idea of having them, of of them being present. He loved the idea of having these grandchildren. But when he actually saw them, he just couldn't, he couldn't engage with them. He couldn't have told you a thing about them. He could have told you their names and how old they were and that he loved them. He couldn't have told you what year they were at school. He couldn't have told you what the name of their school was. Anything like that, really. Um, it would never have occurred to me to say, oh, the kids have got a nativity play. Do you want to come and see it? Mm. He just wasn't present in that way. Neither of them, neither my real dad or the other guy, neither of them ever admitted to having an addiction. You know, I heard my dad say once, well, I think I'm an alcoholic. But after that, it was always, you know, I'm managing it, I'm moderating, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, And, well, to be honest, I still don't like the word alcoholic. I don't like labels. How does it feel for you to be, as we say, a child of an alcoholic? How do you identify to that? Is it something you don't feel comfortable with or? Um, I actually don't mind labels if they're helpful I can understand and obviously every label has a stigma around it doesn't it so one of my children has recently been diagnosed as having ADHD for example and we really battled with that is that a really negative label we're attaching to a child Mm. actually it's been incredibly helpful in our situation for for him and kind of understanding it 
I think alcoholic is is a negative term for a lot of people with a lot of judgments attached to it. But the reality is I am the child of an alcoholic. And so it doesn't bother me at all. And I actually find it quite, it's a huge part of my identity that I'm not going to deny. Mm. And it gives me an affiliation with other people who've experienced it. Because if I stood in, I couldn't sit here talking to you and go, yeah, no, I had a dad and he liked to drink. Mm. Because that doesn't, that doesn't help other people. Look, the reality is my dad was an alcoholic and I'm his child. I, it, it is what it is. Mm. Um, and there's no judgment on me. It's not my fault. No, I, I love didn't, that answer. I didn't cause it. Do you, it's a difficult question, I suppose, but do you wonder how things would be for you if you wasn't a child of alcoholic? Like, would things look different, do you think, for you? Has this shaped you? I mean, absolutely it has. There's not one area of my life that I don't think has been impacted by it. Again, that's really hard for me to say whether that's a negative or a positive. I don't know who I am without having had an alcoholic dad. But the same as I don't know who I am without having my mum or my brother or my husband now or my kids because they're a huge part of who you are, aren't they? All I know is my dad was an alcoholic. It absolutely cost him everything. And that's not what I want for me or for my children. Yeah, it has. Every, Every kind of anxiety, everything I get stressed about, everything that worries me or I get angry about but also there's a lot of things I'm very very calm about because when bad things have happened to you you absolutely do get a handle on what's important and what isn't absolutely and it seemed like a bit of a obvious question but you know I I sometimes ask myself the question um I wonder how I would have been if I didn't drink a bit in the early days you know but it is what it is isn't it and you have to deal with the cards you you're dealt with so moving on to the documentary there's been a lot of media coverage around the vicky patterson documentary uh about her dad and i made uh my uh views clear on my instagram um last week about what my reaction was to that and um how do you think that went because you were on it for uh what 90 seconds to a couple of minutes or whatever and uh as i said previously like <laughs> Um, with TV editing, you probably filmed a lot more. So was there any more that you wish you could have talked about in that documentary? Yeah, I mean, we had a really, really long chat, the three of us in that room. And I think there's a connection between children of alcoholics. There's so many unspoken things that you just absolutely get. And actually what's really, I find always really helpful is kind of feeding off, oh, do you... Do you do that? Do you panic if somebody doesn't come home when they say they will? And and really kind of gauging what is sort of a, for want of a better expression, a hangover of being the child of an alcoholic. Which parts do you all do? Because you want to normalise some bits that you question, don't Mm -hmm. you? Mm. Um, She was lovely. She's obviously very, very upset and she's still in it right she's still Mm. absolutely in the thick of it and I have again I'm not the right word the benefit of two years of of hindsight on my situation and I don't really I don't have to consider my dad anymore so I can focus really on what it means for me I can say things that I would never have been able to say while he was alive and my family really support the fact that I'm doing this and I feel able to. 
So I think that's really difficult, isn't it? Again, there's so much negative stigma around the word. I think it was very brave. I think certainly I would never have been able to have those conversations with my dad while he was alive. I would never really have been able to sort of actually even say my dad's an alcoholic in front of him. It's just sad. I don't think, I don't think from my perspective, her dad is ready to enter any sort of recovery I didn't get that sense he reminded me a lot of my dad actually you know kind of knows it isn't okay isn't really making the noises that suggest yeah that's what I got I I sensed extreme denial and I thought as well it it came across like a generational thing as well you know men of a certain generation and that's why I feel blessed that I'm out of it because I sort of fit in I know your dad was 10 years older than me well a bit older um but i'm in that bracket of people that are in the denial that it's just a few beers with the lads i, I ain't got a problem but i don't want to talk about it don't talk to me about it because i've got it under control kind of thing uh and if you get pressed on it then you start to get irritable and really defensive and say look let's talk about something else you know and, and i feel blessed that i'm i've been able to escape what i was in uh, but I do see it a lot in, in especially men of a certain age. Oh, absolutely. Where would, he, where would my dad realistically have gone for help? Because mental health issues were not talked about in that generation. It was absolutely a sign of weakness. And also as a, as a guy, sort of an older guy on his own, where was, he, where was his social life going to come from? Because he'd lost all his confidence. I see it now. He had no confidence. The only confidence he had was turning up at the bowls club to people he knew and sitting there all afternoon having a drink in a, in a place he trusted. He wasn't going to go into a room or kind of find a new hobby or he was so physically destroyed as well towards the end by his addiction that really, if it wasn't something he already knew, he sort of had this whole week structured around kind of he met some friends in a pub on a Thursday for lunch and he went to the bowls club and he couldn't have turned his back on all of that as a single guy in his 60s because he'd have had nothing, you know, and and, and to repair the relationships that had fallen by the wayside was, would, would have been so far beyond him. He was never going to be able to do that. I'm pleased that there's so much more conversation around mental health and understanding around addiction but ultimately alcohol is just such a tricky one isn't it because everybody does it yeah. you, know, you turn up to you turn up to a group of friends and go great news i've stopped taking heroin and everyone's going yeah. to act and rightly so absolutely applaud you you turn up and say oh i'm not drinking one yeah. everyone tries to force you to do it and yeah. I, I do know i haven't drunk for nearly two years now and that, that is what happens. People try to encourage you to do it. Why did you decide? Was it because of when your dad died that you just had enough and you just decided to stop? No. I mean, I think you probably you kind of maybe recall the story and that I'd actually had a couple of conversations with you, a couple of calls with you about my relationship with alcohol and about how the fact I was really unhappy with it I felt for me I was consuming too much and certainly on paper I absolutely was and I just didn't feel I had a handle on it anymore and I I wanted to stop I was scared of saying that I had to stop I was scared of what that meant for my relationships with my friends and my social life and it was you know everything that I knew 
So I think we'd had two calls maybe. And uh, yeah, and then my dad died. And uh, I remember texting you and just saying, and I, I, think, I, I think the first call we had, I hadn't even really talked about my dad because I didn't really think it was a thing. And it was only when we'd kind of sort of got a bit of a connection, I said, well, there is something I probably need to say. I had a very complicated relationship with drinking. I felt it was becoming part of my identity. And then there was always that thing, oh, you're really funny when you're drunk. Mm. Or you're, you know, you're really... Um, I'd got really uncomfortable with how I felt about it. If I went out for dinner with friends, I would definitely drink the most. I'd be the one ordering another bottle of wine. And if somebody else was pouring themselves some from a shared bottle, I'd almost be watching how much they were having because I was quite jealous that they were maybe having a bit more than me. Mm. Um, I'd got to a point where I definitely would have kind of, I've got into like a bit of a pre-drinking um, mindset. And yeah, I was just really uncomfortable that I never seemed to be the one who could stop at one. I went on a girl's holiday the summer before my dad died and four of us would go for lunch and they'd get a, a bottle of wine and then that would be it. And I'd be thinking, well, hang on, where's the where's the rest? Oh, and yeah. I'd go for dinner and the food would have been of absolutely zero interest to me. Um, if someone would pour me a glass of water and I'd ignore it. I just was... I was just becoming increasingly uncomfortable. But I was, uh, you know, obviously I've always had a very heightened sense of what drinking is. But I'd also put in all these things so that I I could say that I wasn't like my dad. So I didn't drink red wine because my dad drank it. Or I put in all these sort of weird sorts of safety measures that just were to reassure me that I wasn't turning into him. It's really fascinating, this conversation. And, and you know, flip it on the other side is like, I drink because of my dad or I drink because my mum was an alcoholic, you know. Is there any part of you that believes in that theory? No, mm, no I've never looked into My dad firmly believe there was a genetic link I I don't really know what I think maybe there is I've never really looked into it all I know is that I was fortunate enough to realize that his behavior had absolutely impacted my relationship with alcohol and it was something that I didn't want to carry on but again I was you know I'm in a very fortunate place where I'm sort of very settled and I've got a lovely family and I felt able to do that and maybe if my life was different at that point I would have you know kind of carried on down a different path and I've had nothing but support for not doing it. I know how amazing your your husband is and that and when you reached out to me I didn't mention that in the beginning because I didn't want to go on about how fantastic my sobriety coaching is but (laughs) there's a a plug but um, at at the end of the documentary when you watched it at home what was your takeout at the end of it? For me and obviously everybody watches these things from it for a different reason don't they and I was very much watching it as the child of an alcoholic what is this going to tell other children of alcoholics who are struggling with this? My takeout was that you can have some really open conversations with fellow COAs. Absolutely. Um, they will completely understand what you're coming from. And actually, it's really fun to be in a room or to be with somebody. And, you know, I've said it to friends who are struggling um, with this. I've, there's nothing you can say to me that I haven't thought myself about my dad in the past. 
there is no you can say whatever you like there is no judgment because it is a special type of um conversation when when somebody gets that I guess what I wish I'd had the opportunity to highlight more is definitely um from an ACOA perspective is they work around the idea of the you know the six the six C's they have been so important to me because there are still times two years on age 44 where I am completely overwhelmed that I ended up the child of an alcoholic with a dead dad who died because he couldn't stop drinking I can't quite believe sometimes that I sit here and say those things because those are the things that happen to other people and for such a long time I didn't admit it but certainly from a NACOA point of view, you have the six C's, you know, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it, you can make choices to protect yourself. Those are things that I repeat over and over again in my head. I didn't cause it, I couldn't control it, it wasn't my responsibility to make him stop. That's really, really important because I spent a lot of time thinking he could be able to stop, thinking he was weak for not being able to stop, thinking it was my job, thinking that if we, if I lived closer, if I'd been kinder, if I understood it more, if I enabled it and maybe encouraged him to cut down, if I told him I'd never see him again if he didn't stop. Mm. And that runs through. And actually, none of those things would have made the blindest bit of difference. And I completely understand that. And that's where that message is just so, so important. It's not your fault you can't control it. It's not your responsibility. You can make choices to look after yourself. And I suppose that goes across the board as well, doesn't it? For partners of as well. Um, because when someone's that deep in addiction, it's, you know, they can get support and there is support out there, but they need to want to do it for that to work. Yeah, and one of the most powerful things I've seen recently was the Will Young document, documentary yeah. about his brother, where he actually said, the last time I saw my brother, I hit him and told him to leave my house. And that is okay. Yeah. And for somebody to actually say that, and one, to admit that that was the last behaviour that they, they did, but also that absolutely it was okay in that moment for him to behave like that. A hundred percent. And I bring that up a lot. I was so, so proud of Will when yeah. he said that because you you have to draw the line sometimes. And, you know, like Vicky's mum left her dad and you could almost see, well, this was from my perspective, that she was almost emotionally detached from it because she had had so much life experience around it that when she left, she detached and that, that's harder for a child of an alcoholic, isn't it, I imagine? Because I don't think you can, can you? And certainly from my perspective, I would not have wanted my mum to remain married to my dad. Mm. I would not have wanted that for her or for us. I've never wanted that. It was not her responsibility, the same as it wasn't mine and my brother's responsibility. And, and she detached herself. I mean, she, you know, she would sort of ask after him. And we always knew, again, my brother and I were very, very fortunate. We have a very close relationship and were have absolutely always kind of been in this together. And certainly when my dad died, there was no question of it was just the two of us. Um, weirdly, there's parts of me that look back on that time really fondly, which 
it's a very strange thing to say. My dad died in the most horrendous of circumstances. He essentially had a huge hemorrhage on his own. Um, so, you know, the police knocked on the door and all of those things, and it was not a pleasant time. But actually, it's the first time my brother and I had just been the two of us, and we were such a team. And again, it was that thing of, we'd known for years that my dad would die through his drinking. And when it happened, we just absolutely came together and we had conversations that we'd never really had and we shared memories. But as an adult, you don't get to spend a lot of time with your siblings. And certainly there were things we had to do during that immediate aftermath. I couldn't have done it without him and probably vice versa and we will never speak to anybody else about them and we will probably never share those details but it really strengthened that relationship in a way that actually I'm really grateful for you know my mum again completely supported us we're very fortunate we've got the most incredible aunt and uncle as well who much like us with my dad we didn't know what to do we didn't know where to go and I guess fundamentally my dad didn't want to receive the help that we could have provided but we've always been very very fortunate that we've always felt very very loved and very supported by other people I mean at some parts of it I mean I remember talking to Sarah Drage about her dad as well uh and when he died there was a a, a certain feeling of relief as well because of the incredible responsibility yeah. that family. a huge relief a huge relief because when you've known Something is coming for such a long time. And actually, for me, I've been waiting for my dad to die genuinely for about 20 years. And my imagination would take me to, or, you know, was he going to wrap his car around a tree? Was he going to kill somebody else? Was he going to fall over and hit his head? Was he going to get into a fight? What, what was going to be the ending? The ending was almost inevitably going to involve alcohol. But what was that ending? The day my dad died, um, I was in the car with my husband. And I said, oh, I don't need, to, don't need to check my phone now before I go to bed. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, the last thing I do at night, I check my phone has got the ringer on because my dad might need me. Mm. And just this behaviour was so ingrained that the last thing you do, you check your phone has got volume because your dad will phone in the middle of the night, either because he's ill, because he's hurt, or because he's really, really distressed. And all of those things have happened. And that was within hours. And I went, oh, I don't, I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, I've, there's a huge sense of relief in a lot, of which, which is horrible. It would have been his 70th birthday in June. And there are lots of times where I wish he was still around and I wish I could have those conversations and I wish things had been different and I do miss it I mean you know no one wants their parent to die Mm, mm. but my life is less stressful now and I can really focus on what's important and actually this was always going to be the conclusion and now I kind of have those answers yeah and going through his stuff I have a lot of answers about what it was like for him because we could never have that conversation so I know that he had a diary where he was writing down how many units he'd had he drunk he didn't enjoy drinking the way he was I know that I get that he was making steps constantly for years books about giving up cds about giving up his whole amazon browsing history when I closed down his amazon account the last things he'd been browsing on Amazon 
were books about what it is like to be the child of an alcoholic. Oh, God. It was awful, but it shows me how deeply he cared for us, Mm. how much he didn't want us to be those people, and how much, therefore, he didn't want to be the person he had become. Oh, that's really moving, Amy, because um, I went to a Nakoa event in Brighton, which was a, a gallery that Kerry Walker had uh, arranged. And on the train there, she WhatsApp me and said, uh, how about you do a little talk tonight? And and I thought, OK. And when I got there, I was surrounded with uh, children of alcoholics and I, I panicked. And I thought, what do I talk about? Because I am that person. But I was very honest about my drinking uh my guilt shame of how i was and also i was open to all the conversations that i had after the talk as well and so many people come up to me and thank me for being transparent because i realized that these are the conversations they couldn't have with their parents because they were so closed on the subject and it was shut down immediately and that's why with sarah in Coa week we did the question and answers she i don't know if you remember but she asked me the questions that she couldn't ask her dad and I asked them how I'd ask if they were asked to me, you know, because I think there's a lot of work there that can be done on both sides um, with this subject, you know, not just from the child of an alcoholic, but from the alcoholic, which I hate that word, but hey, uh, you know, and and it's something I, I feel passionate about as well. But you, you work with Nakoa now. Um, what is your role there and what do you hope to achieve in the future? I don't really have the words to express how much as a charity they mean to me and not because I ever accessed them when I was in the thick of it. I absolutely wish I had. I wish I'd known about them. I actually found them within days of my dad um, dying. And the one thing that first kind of drew me in was on their website. They've just got the kind of experiences of other CFAs. And it was the first time where I had been reading things that I could have written going oh that's happened to them too oh they feel that oh okay and and it was the first time I'd had validation that actually it was a thing it was it was a thing you are shaped and you have these experiences because your parent drank too much and I became fairly obsessive about like I would check the experience pages every day is there anything new is there anything else that's going to make me feel less on my own in this period and I've now written a few things um for them you know sort of very honest things about how Christmas is so much more fun now my dad's dead which is again to someone who doesn't get it that's a dreadful thing to say isn't it but that is the reality so I found that really cathartic writing for them as well and I don't know how I would have got through it without them without feeling not on my own so primarily for them I will do whatever they ask me (laughs) to do really um so I've done quite a lot of fundraising for them just on a personal level that's something I'm really passionate about um, and will continue to do that I've also done which I think you've done I've done my um speaker training with them so I can now go into different settings yeah um, and have conversations with people about what it was like um and I'm also um a media volunteer so that if if something is being created either kind of a you know in the news or or the, or the documentary for example if I fit the bill of 
what they're looking for, what they're looking to highlight, then that's something that I will absolutely be happy to do as well. Um, but just locally, kind of within my community, I've just been just sort of, you know, very vocal about the fact that this is why my dad died and this is what it was like. And I have had so many people, people you would just know, you know, who I know, be it through my work or my social life or my children's schools. I have had people I just would never have guessed in a million years. Can can we have a chat? Mm. And either because they grew up like that or because their children are now growing up like that. Yeah, I can relate to that. I was on a train the other day, actually, heading back from Cambridge. And um, I think my accent is quite recognisable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like a market boy from Croydon. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, as you know, I'm Croydon. Nothing yeah, wrong there's, with that. A, there's many <laughs> amazing people from Croydon. Anyway, um, I got a message on my Instagram about an hour later from a lad that went to the college in Hartford that I did a talk with Sarah Drage. Uh, and he did mention my accent. He said, oh, I can recognise your voice anyway. He said, but I will say that when you did your talk, it really hit home for me. And since then... I've really reduced my drinking quite a lot, in fact. And also, there were some people that came up to me at the college to ask how to approach their parents as well. So we plant these seeds, don't we? And we don't know where they're being scattered, but they do make a difference. And I think like conversations like we're having today, people are listen to this and relate to you, reach out to you, reach out to Nicoa. People might not even know who they are, and they do now. You know, I'll put everything in the show notes. And it steps forward to change, isn't it? It's like we have to have these open conversations. And I suppose as well, for me, it's being a man, I'm 58 now, is that other men can hear me talk openly about my story and how I've got out of it is important for me as well because I'm an advocate for talking about mental health and being open that it, it's okay to be vulnerable in these conversations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I've had some meetings with um, one of my kids' schools about working with them going forwards as well. So I'd sort of had a conversation with a lot of the pastoral care staff there. And I just said, you would never have known. If I had been a pupil at this school, you would never have known that I was struggling with a parent who had an addiction. I wouldn't have told you because I would have been scared of what you would have thought of him. I wouldn't have wanted to have my every move touch, you know, kind of watched and I wouldn't have wanted anybody interfering. Equally, there was no reason for anyone to interfere and I actually had a very stable, you know, and well provided for household. So there would have been that as well. My dad would have been absolutely furious if he'd have known that I'd even had that conversation or attached that label to him. Um, But also I didn't know, again, you know, like we've said, I didn't have the words at that age to say that this wasn't normal because it was normal for me. And you're absolutely right. I think the key things are normalising the conversation and for people to understand that it doesn't just happen to them. And there are so many amazing people and there is Nakoa and there are all these things out there to support them. And actually one of my kind of proudest moments from the last two years was actually my son who was in year five at the time. So kind of nine, 10, they were doing um, a PHSE lesson and it was about 
drugs and alcohol. And he felt sufficiently empowered to stand up in front of his class and say, my granddad died because he drank too much alcohol. Wow. So his teacher told me. And I genuinely, that for me is one of the most incredible things that has happened because the kids in his class might have then gone home and said his granddad died because he drank too much alcohol. That then highlights to the parents that my dad was an alcoholic. So I don't know if they're in, you know. But again, it was normal. It is what it is. I'm not going to ever lie about it. But for them to feel that nobody will say anything or judge them for that is is incredible. And that is absolutely how it should be. Yeah. Amen to that. And, And before we go, you're sober now. I am. And how has life changed for you? It's just taken a huge amount of stress away from me. So the things I was worried about, or my friends won't invite me out, or um, how do I, how do I get through any, you know, how do I get through these things without it? They just weren't a thing when it came to it, you know, and you were brilliant and you'd put in, because I think my big thing was, well, I can't just sit there. I can't, I can't just say to everybody I don't drink anymore. That's madness. And they're going to be really angry with me because I'm really fun. And it's such a part of who I am now. And I remember you saying, well, just say you're giving up for a month because you've overdone it in the summer holidays. We just come back from a really, really boozy holiday in Italy with friends. And you said to me, well, just say you kind of hit it too hard in Italy and you're having a, having a month off. And then at the end of the month, you say, well, actually, I'm sleeping better and I don't look quite so haggard. <laughs> or, you know, whatever you want to do. But actually, why do you need to put a label on it and say, I don't drink anymore? Which I just had never thought of framing it in that way, because I, I think I knew I probably needed to give up drinking permanently. Mm. I just didn't want to admit it. And then, of course, two weeks later, as we've discussed, my dad actually died. One, I got through that without turning to a bottle of white wine or a bottle of rosé. So that was good. So I think if you can get through that, you know, that's a huge test, isn't it? But I guess now, why would I? Because I'm not, you know, you wouldn't go, I wouldn't have a glass of wine now and feel great about myself two years down the line. And I also now know that I wouldn't be the person who would go back to having a glass of wine. Yeah. I would go back to where I was, which was a place I was not comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. And I would never talk about what I was drinking or how I was drinking because all you can ever say is, I personally was uncomfortable with my relationship with it. I'm not here to tell somebody, well, you shouldn't drink that many units or you shouldn't drink that. Yeah. I was in a place where I was unhappy and I was uncomfortable and I have been fortunate to turn that around. And now it's not a thing. You know, I'll go to places where I haven't met somebody before and I'll just say, I don't drink. And actually never has anybody said, why not? Or questioned me. It's just not what I do now. And really, why should they? Well, yes, but that was that was one of my fears. Yeah, I'm going to have to justify my behaviour. Yeah, but we do. Like what you said earlier, if it's heroin or smoking or I'm on a diet or I'm doing this, I'm becoming a veggie, like, oh, brilliant. I'm giving up drinking. What's wrong with you? Do you know what I mean? Uh, and this is why we're trying to break the stigma down of that because it's ridiculous. And uh, the more people I get involved with uh, in life, the more I realise that it's not so much a thing now. People of all ages and different social groups are stopping drinking. So it's all going in the right direction. And the other thing before we go, I was going to say, 
about your two years is is the fact that your children as well are growing up with a mum that doesn't drink, you know, so you're present all the time and, you know, it's so important for them as well. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm still not going to win any awards. They still really annoy me. I still shout. I still swear. I still lose my temper. And it hasn't made me a paragon of in, in any way, shape or form. I didn't lose any weight. Like, you know, those things. But I just am not stressed about it. It's just nothing that concerns me now. Yeah. It, it just isn't. But I have got to a point where there were things I was doing that my children were witnessing that I remembered seeing with my dad. Like, mm. I, re- you know, I'd kind of go out for dinner. I'd go, we'd take the kids to friends for a barbecue and we'd have to leave the car there because I couldn't drive home. And like, I remember, you know, kind of walking them home in Crocs at 11 o'clock at night across a, um, you know, across the common. And it was all okay and they were okay. But I remember my dad doing stuff like that with us and me being actually quite scared. I think more, more, um, likely, as they were scared you were wearing Crocs, to be honest. I wasn't wearing them, they were. Oh, they I would were. never, you know, I might have been drinking, but I would never have worn a Croc. <laughs> well, look, Amy, I could talk to you for hours, and it's lovely <laughs> seeing you as well. And I'm really proud of you as well. And, and uh, you were amazing in the documentary and uh, continue to do the incredible work you do for Nakara as well. Well, and you, you've and come on leaps and bounds. You didn't even have a blue tick when I first met you, and now look at hey. you. <laughs> oh thank you my book's out soon as well god knows i've written that but that's I can't out wait. I can't <laughs> wait. all right amy bless your heart darling thank you so much and uh hope to see you soon take care see you later take it easy i hope you've enjoyed today's episode of one for the road please remember to subscribe and leave a review you can now download my app Sober Dave on the Apple and Google Play Store and on there you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking and there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode but until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.